Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Max Blumenthal. Max Blumenthal is an award-winning journalist and the author of several books, including best-selling Republican Gomorrah, Goliath, The 51-Day War, and his latest, which we will be discussing, The Management of Savagery. He has produced print articles for an array of publications, many video reports, several documentaries, including Killing Gaza. Max Blumenthal founded The Gray Zone in 2015 to shine a journalistic light on the United States' perpetual war and its dangerous domestic repercussions. Visit thegrayzone.com. Max Blumenthal, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Great to be on with you. Uh, Thanks for coming on. So the full title of this new book is The Management of Savagery, How America's National Security State Fueled the Rise of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and Donald Trump. Uh, Can you give us just a brief taste of what you mean by that? Well, the book is really a look at how America's proxy wars and regime change wars and direct invasions like the invasion of Iraq have blown back and affected our politics in the West and driven the rise of the ultra-right from Europe to the rise of Donald Trump. Um, And so, you know, I look at the first major or the most uh, expensive CIA operation, uh, Operation Cyclone in Afghanistan, which began in 19... Well, it began in the 1980s, but it was really launched in 1979, two years after I was born, as the beginning of this period um, that not only would eventually uh, create the problem of international jihadism, which, but which would, um, through you know, refugee outflows, through um, you know, the fact that there was a quote-unquote disposal problem um, in cities like New York, where you had figures who had participated in this conflict alongside Osama bin Laden, operating under the watch of the FBI and CIA, um, fueling uh, this kind of uh, backlash from the far right, and eventually uh, resulting in 9-11 and the whole war on terror and how Trump benefited from the politics of the war on terror. So it's really the, the story of the politics that have dominated my life and the life of anyone uh, of my generation. And, you know, I was just trying to unpack it and understand uh, the situation we're in in a, in a more sophisticated way. A lot of writers, um, Chris Hedges, for example, have pointed to economic austerity and inequality as a major factor in the rise of Trump. And this is just kind of another angle for understanding this politics. And I'm pointing the finger here, not necessarily at Trump, but at the national security state, including figures who are identified with the resistance to Trump, uh, former CIA chief John Brennan, uh, James Clapper, um, you know, these Michael Hayden, these figures who are constantly on CNN and MSNBC and trying to help readers understand uh, what they did semi-covertly in the Middle East um, to destabilize entire regions from Syria to Iraq to Libya and how that's impacted us in the West. So in the broad sense, these are the managers of savagery in our own society. Um, And then, of course, I analyze the rise of ISIS and al-Qaeda's various affiliates across the Middle East in the context of America's secret wars. 
Max, you used the phrase disposal problem. For anyone who hasn't become familiar with that phrase, could you just uh, define it? Yeah, you know, this was a phrase that I got from Jack Bloom, who was the special investigator from the Senate Select Committee, uh, looking at Iran-Contra, um, looking at the problem of uh, drug shipments from Central America that were being used to finance the Contras. And he also examined um, Operation Cyclone, the U.S. semi-covert war in Afghanistan to dislodge a Soviet-backed government using the Mujahideen, uh, which ultimately brought Osama bin Laden, the son of Saudi aristocracy of the bin Laden construction family, to the Afghan border to fund what was then known as the Services Bureau, um, which ferried foreign fighters into the Afghan battlefield. The Services Bureau was an international network bin Laden funded that became the basis for al-Qaeda, and it actually had an office in New York City, right on Atlantic Avenue. And after the Afghan war was over, a lot of young men came back. Some of them were American. Some of them were not. One of them was Omar Abdul Rahman, the so-called blind sheikh, who arrived in the U.S. on a CIA visa, despite warnings from Egyptian intelligence that he was a very dangerous man. And he takes over the Services Bureau wing in New York, which is known as the Al-Kifa Center. And through various figures who had developed and cultivated relationships with the CIA and FBI throughout this period when their only goal was to bring down the Soviet Union, using even jihadists to do so, uh, to weaken it at soft underbelly in Afghanistan. Um, you know, these figures in the U.S., were developing in al-Qaeda cells throughout the 90s, figures like Ali Abdelhoud Mohammed, who was a close uh, affiliate of Ayman al-Zawahiri, the eminence Greece of al-Qaeda, the right-hand man of Osama bin Laden, who was also working for the CIA and FBI, and he was taking uh, people like El-Sayed Nosser uh, from the Services Bureau out to a shooting range in Long Island and training them in gun tactics. Uh, he was uh, obtaining classified U.S. documents on how to, for example, assemble anti-tank weapons on ship movement and sending them directly to bin Laden and his men as he trained them in Afghanistan for the next fight. So this was the disposal problem. And so when you when you think and, about... And, and Max, Islamic, joining yeah. the U.S. Army and lecturing its officers, correct? Well, uh, Ali Mohammed was known as Ali the American, and he initially actually came over to the U.S. from Egypt on a CIA visa, and Zawahiri wanted him there as basically a spy, um, but the CIA wanted him because he had already performed some vital services in Afghanistan. And he began uh, doing his work at the JFK School of Special Warfare as a sergeant in Fort Bragg, and he had access to classified documents um, that I mentioned there, and he exfiltrated these documents out and would send them to various jihadist cadres so they could learn the lessons that he had gained. And he was working at the um, JFK School of Warfare at Fort Bragg under the watch of Colonel Norville Diatkin, who was basically this professor to the officers. And he would have Ali Muhammad give lectures on the Arab mind, um, these kind of Orientalist lectures. I mean, the story is so obscene. It's almost impossible to believe. But, you know, this book is partly about the rise of Islamophobia. 
And, you know, Islamophobia is largely in the U.S. inspired by the 9-11 attacks, by this idea that there's terrorists next door, that there could be an al-Qaeda cell in every city. And the fact is that there was an al-Qaeda cell in New York City in the 1990s, but it was operating under the watch of the CIA and the FBI. And then it was ultimately mopped up. They got rid of their disposal problem by manufacturing cases on all these figures, including the blind shake, and basically blaming them for a contrived plot. Uh, but, I mean, you have to point the finger here at the CIA to understand why many Americans have this belief um, that there were terror cells in New York. Why, for example, a week after 9-11, Dan Rather went on Dave Letterman uh, speaking to a shaken nation as the most trusted name in news and said that Arab Americans were celebrating the 9-11 attack from across the Hudson River and that there were these terror cells in New York. He was basing that on rumors about the Al-Kifa Center um, and just simple, simple falsehood that Trump himself would later repeat in the 2016 campaign to, to stir Islamophobia among his base. Indeed. We're speaking with Max Blumenthal, whose new book is called The Management of Savagery. Uh, you mentioned, Max, that uh, false charges that didn't involve the CIA were trumped up against some of these figures. But in many other cases, you recount, uh, people are allowed to remain free, indictments are avoided, testimony from witnesses is avoided, other nations are instructed to let uh, people go free uh, in order yeah. to avoid uh, this history right? Yeah, well, Ali, Ali Mohammed, the triple agent of the CIA, FBI, and uh, Egyptian al-Jihad organization, which was a wing of al-Qaeda at the time. Uh, 1994, and this was documented in Peter, Peter Lance's book, Triple Spy, um, which is, you know, the, the, basically the biography of Ali Mohammed, which has been forgotten. He was stopped by the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police you know, uh, which was operating kind of as an intelligence wing in Canada uh, at the Vancouver Air International Airport with uh, an al-Jihad operative. They held them, um, and they were deeply worried because these figures were on their way into the U.S., and they received a call from an FBI agent who was Ali Mohammed's handler, and he basically said, let them go. This is coming from the highest levels. And the Canadian mounted police were forced to let him go. And that's how this operated again and again and again. I interviewed Roger Davis, who was the lawyer for many of the um, people from the Al-Kifa or Services Bureau organization that later became Al-Qaeda, who were put on trial in New York in uh, 1995 on what were effectively trumped-up charges. They were induced into kind of a manufactured plot where a confidential FBI informant got them to agree to bomb some things that were never going to be bombed. And it was sold as the Bridges and Monuments trial. It was covered across the nation. And Stavis referred to his defendants as Team America. And he said that, you know, his argument in court was there's no way you can prosecute them because they have been performing a vital service for the U.S. ever since they were used in Afghanistan in this covert operation. Um, and Stavis attempted to subpoena Ali Mohammed. He said that Ali Muhammad was the key to the whole thing because he was working for the FBI, the CIA, and al-Qaeda at the time. And the two prosecutors in this case, who are very well-known figures, 
uh, Andrew McCarthy, who's since become this hardcore conservative pundit, and Patrick Fitzgerald um, instructed Ali Muhammad to reject the subpoena and remain in California because they were so concerned about the public relations damage this would do to America's national security state. And so Stavis was never able to bring him um, to the court. This book, Max Blumenthal, uh, the the management of savagery, uh, even for that segment of the U.S. reading population that remembers that the U.S. funded and trained jihadists in Afghanistan, uh, I think can benefit from the incredible details that you've put into this story that that paint a different picture, I think, from what anybody has in mind. I mean, to, to take one of, of many hundreds of examples, uh, I did not remember this. The U.S. government in the 80s gave the University of Nebraska a million dollars to produce millions of third-grade textbooks for Afghanistan. That, that sounds noble and enlightened. Uh, <laughs> was it? Well, I, I think it was actually $51 million, and it was to a guy named Thomas Goutier at the University of Nebraska's Afghan Studies Center, which was a front for the CIA. Uh, USAID paid for the textbooks, and the textbooks were designed to encourage Afghan children and children in refugee camps uh, to participate in guerrilla warfare or jihadist activity with math equations on um, dead Soviet soldiers, or how many Soviet soldiers had their eyes gouged, this kind of thing. Yeah. And those textbooks were later repurposed by the Taliban when they came into power, thanks to the U.S. And the only alteration the Taliban made was to blot out the uh, images of uh, physical faces, of human faces, because that was considered idolatry. So these textbooks provided the entire basis for um, two successive uh, Islamist organizations that were officially sold to Americans as enemies. And meanwhile, Thomas Boutier, over at the University of Nebraska, actually hosted the Taliban on their one of their first U.S. trips and took them to Mount Rushmore, like a scene out of a Coen Brothers movie. And when he brought the Taliban back to his uh, academic center at campus, an Afghan woman actually ran away and hid in the basement because she recognized them as the you know, men who she had had to flee her country from when she was in Afghanistan. So this is really a perfect kind of metaphor for the entire U.S. relationship with that country and the secret relationship between America's national security elite and international um, Islamism. And, and when the United States did this to Afghanistan, trained and armed these jihadists, refugees fled to Europe. And you describe in the book the the rise of these fascist groups in Europe that hadn't been seen in decades. Uh, and this is an occurrence that has that has continued this cycle of wars and refugees and fascism and more wars. Can you can you describe how this got going? Yeah, I write about how you know Scandinavia. Um, in the 1980s, uh, especially Norway, became you know, these became the countries that were most accepting to refugees, um, Norway in particular. And this is at, the, at a time when you had the rise of the first kind of right-wing populist parties, like the Popular Party in Norway. Um, uh, and you saw uh, the first burnings of mosques at this time, um, basically a country that fancied itself as progressive 
and enlightened, uh, had a new population on its hands, and at the same time they did not have any understanding of multiculturalism as, you know, us, you know, progressive Americans have. And you actually had mosques being torched for the first time. The popular party was uh, attracted people like a, a young Anders Breivik, who later decided to form his own party, the Knights Templar, and to carry out uh, one of the worst terror attacks on European soil, killing uh, youth at the Utoya youth camp who he blamed, uh, who were affiliated with the Labor Party, who he blamed for the refugee problem, and he called them cultural Marxists, which is what the shooter at, a, at the synagogue in California um, this April uh, called his victims as well. So this language uh, starts to develop against the backdrop of Western secret wars in the Middle East that are disrupting societies that are destabilizing um, entire states in the Middle East. And it continues through Libya and through Iraq, um, the Iraq war, which produces a massive refugee outflow, and then Libya, um, where you have Muammar Gaddafi actually warning in 2011, Tony Blair in a phone call that if you topple my government and if you drive me out, uh, you will be overwhelmed with refugees, and you will face uh, a crisis, a political crisis of your own. And that proved to be the case. You now have open-air slave auctions in Libya as people who have been impoverished, immiserated, and who've had their own societies destabilized by international finance and pillaging and mining have moved north from sub-Saharan Africa to Libya and are now being basically uh, sold inside Libya by the gangs and militias that have come out into the open since that society was destabilized. And then finally you have Syria, the worst refugee crisis since World War II, which is a direct product of a multi-billion dollar CIA arm and equip operation to, to arm uh, radical extremist insurgents. Uh, including al-Qaeda's local affiliate, to destabilize that society. And I reference a study by Max Abrams and his team at Northeastern University, which is the first study to interview Syrian refugees in Europe about why they left and who they blame. And it's basically even between those who blame the Syrian government, who were on the opposition side, whose voices are the ones we exclusively hear from in the West, and those who actually blame the insurgent gangs, including al-Qaeda, that have benefited from arms from the U.S. and its Gulf allies in Turkey. So this is a problem that we created, and the problem has been exploited, for example, by Nigel Farage and the U.K. The UK Independence Party uh, during the Brexit referendum um, to convince voters that if they voted leave, uh, they wouldn't have a million, a million Syrian refugees in their society. This, of course, appealed to people who are more parochial from the more exclusively white and uh, economically devastated areas in northern England. And according to a YouGov poll, 70% of those who voted for leave in the UK voted on the basis of immigration at a time when David Cameron, who was a gigantic supporter of the intervention in Syria, was only allowing 60,000 Syrian refugees in. So it was a complete air campaign, but it was made possible because refugees were on their way. So I'm not blaming the refugees here. 
But we have to understand how when we destabilize other countries, it destabilizes our own and the most extreme voices tend to fill the void. And by we, you, of course, mean the U.S. government and allied governments. Um, I, I think yeah, that, of course. I, I think this book, Max, does an does a incredible job of answering the tired old zombie question, why do they hate us, why do they hate the U.S. government? But I think it also answers the question very well, how do they manage to do it so effectively? Uh, and, and it answers that with the degree to which terrorists have received CIA training and arms. And, fi- and you describe uh, attacks on U.S. embassies over the years that uh, apparently with uh, techniques learned from the CIA. Can you can you talk about this, this sort of blowback? Yeah, um, you had... I mean, the, the attacks in Tanzania and Kenya, which were the first major al-Qaeda attacks on U.S. installations, and the advanced planning for these attacks, the photography of the installations, um, was a pet project of the triple spy that I had described earlier, Ali Abdul Sud Mohammed, um, who was working under the watch of the FBI, the CIA, and al-Qaeda. Uh, he began photographing these installations in 1993. In 1994 when Osama bin Laden essentially ordered an attack on a uh, U.S. consular facility in Yemen. Um, I quoted uh, someone from Stratfor, which is known as the private CIA, who at the time was working with the CIA and did the first kind of um, survey of the bombing. And he concluded that these were the tactics that had been imparted by his agency to fighters in Afghanistan, these same bombing tactics, scouting tactics. Um, I cite John Cooley, um, the journalist who produced one of the first and most uh, comprehensive books on uh, America's covert wars uh, in Central Asia and the Middle East. And he even references the Luxor attack, which was one of the bloodiest attacks on a tourist resort in Egypt, and how the killers, the, you know, al-Qaeda murderers were using tactics that they had gathered on the Afghan battlefield, including, uh, you know, sniping the legs out from fleeing victims from people they were pursuing, and then killing them execution style. Um, So, you know, it all goes back to the war in Afghanistan that the U.S. waged to undermine the Soviet Union um, and a Soviet-backed government. It really all goes back to that. And I believe that if the U.S. hadn't spent billions of dollars to do that, um, the monster of international jihadism would not have been unlocked to the extent it was. The relationship with Saudi Arabia was also consolidated through that uh, operation. And you would not have had 9-11. There's there's absolutely no way 9-11 would have taken place Without 9-11, there's no way the neoconservatives and the hardliners in the Bush administration could have made the case for the war in Iraq. Without the war in Iraq, I don't believe that a reality show star named Donald Trump would have been able to make himself into a president. And I discuss in my book um, in detail how Trump played off of and exploited the moral injury that so many middle Americans experienced participating in the war in Iraq. Um, and played off of their sentiment uh, to cultivate nationwide support 
and how he also tapped into the deep wellspring of anti-interventionist and anti-war feeling in America, while Hillary Clinton was calling for a new war in Syria through a no-fly zone and was speaking in the most belligerent Bush-like terms. So I think that we have to kind of look at our politics in a different way and look at it historically and understand this secret history, and that's kind of why I wrote this book. I could not agree more. We, we got just about three or four minutes left. Uh, when you talk about uh, the 9-11 couldn't have happened without past U.S. actions, there are still listeners who will think of the topic of 9-11 trutherism. Uh, can, you, yeah. can you talk about what you think that has done for better or worse here? Well, there are so many bizarre elements to 9-11 that it's understandable that people would adopt a conspiratorial point of view. Um, but, you know, as it's said, there's conspiracy theories and there are conspiracy facts. And I tried to put the conspiracy facts down in this book using the public record. For example, showing how Noaf um, al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midhar, the two muscle hijackers who uh, had come in from the Malaysian al-Qaeda summit, um, had had their passports photographed by the CIA the CIA knew they were entering the U.S., how they were picked up by Saudi intelligence agents after entering the U.S. on a direct flight uh, from Malaysia to L.A. and were essentially paid for it every step of the way by Saudi Arabia, and that the CIA did not tell the FBI anything about these men as the so-called Day of Planes plot developed, um, how on 9-11 there were, in fact, Israeli intelligence agents who were interrogated or interviewed by the FBI because they were seen dancing on the streets of New York with photographic gear and cash. This is reported by ABC and the Jewish Daily Forward at the time, and no one disputes it. There were um, Saudi Arabian uh, families affiliated with the royal family and the bin Laden family who were immediately spirited out of the country on State Department flights. All of this took place, but when when you have a truther movement come along, um, really through the voice of Alex Jones, who I profile in this book, um, what it does is it diffuses the um, anti-war narrative and the anti-interventionist narrative by dis dis distracting people from the real source of this attack, which is American empire um, and the complete cynicism of the national security state, where they're willing to work and negotiate and collude with um, even jihadists in order to achieve ge geopolitical goals, and who cares what blowback we experience. And it makes people think about bombs planted inside Building 7, um, about an inside job, and then ultimately Alex Jones begins taking all of that energy, um, that anti-authority energy, that anti-establishment energy, and channeling it into a right-wing movement that eventually would become or influence the alt-right. You know, he starts injecting uh, conspiracy theories about immigrants being sent by the New World Order. He's talking about chemtrails. And in many ways, Alex Jones winds up benefiting the establishment by sapping uh, the kind of anti-interventionist and anti-imperialist uh, skepticism about the official story of 9-11 and turning it into something absolutely ridiculous and right-wing. And, of course, Alex Jones became one of the most effective grassroots uh, ringleaders and recruiters for the Trump campaign. So I think we need to see trutherism as something that 
uh, ultimately benefit the establishment as it's currently, you know, been cultivated by figures like Alex Jones. Very insightful, very well said, uh, and this book is very well put together. Highly recommend that everybody get a copy for yourself and your friends. It's called The Management of Savagery, How America's National Security State Fueled the Rise of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and Donald Trump by our guest, Max Blumenthal. Max, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thanks a lot for having me on, Dave. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.